Beloved, as you have uh, Genesis 26 in front of you this morning, I uh, just want to call your attention to a very familiar text, a text that you probably know well, and that's what you have in the very first verse of Hebrews 12. Seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, that exhortation, of course, follows the text. Again, it's also quite familiar, Hebrews 11, where, again, the apostle sets before us, really, the whole scope of redemptive history to show us how the faithful lived under adversity, how they chose suffering over sin, how, like Moses, they, they, chose, they chose Christ even over the riches of this world. And after that, he comes to this exhortation seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I read that text to you this morning as we come to our text in the book of Genesis for a simple reason. And that is, in this exhortation, there is something of an argument. An argument not only about how you and I should live, an argument about how you and I should understand the Old Testament. An argument about how you and I should interpret the lives of those that we encounter in the Old Covenant. So I want to keep that in front of us, and and again, we'll come back to that, God willing, at the end of our time this morning. Very briefly, I I want to review, though, uh, what we did cover in chapter 25. Now, if if you remember back, uh, uh, last time we were together, the 25th chapter sets before us that great transition where we leave, of course, the narration of Abraham's life and we move into that of Isaac. And of course, in chapter 25 and verse 11, that transition is made explicit. It came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac. So that's what we're supposed to expect, that that now you and I are going to be treated to the history, the, the biography of Isaac. Uh, But as you come to the end of chapter 25, that's not what you find at all. You find instead a digression. It seems to be a digression, at least, on the lives of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. Well, I want you to recognize that in one sense, we shouldn't see that latter part of chapter 25 as a digression at all. It, It really is one way of communicating to us Isaac's blessedness. In other words, the first blessing that Isaac receives that we're informed of is the two sons, the twins, that that are born to him. And that's made explicit to us in verse 21. Isaac entreated the Lord, and the Lord was entreated of Isaac. The, the emphasis in the text is that this was a blessing of God. Even though Esau, of course, was, was as we'll see in our text even this morning, certainly a grief to his father and mother. Nevertheless, we're supposed to understand that as the first aspect of Isaac's blessedness. Our text this morning, chapter 26, expands on this idea that Isaac was blessed. In fact, that's how you're supposed to understand this chapter. This is giving to us a fuller picture of the blessing that falls on Isaac. Now, as you look at this text, you can divide it really in five or six ways, depending on how you want to do so. Verses 1 to 5, you have the repeating of the promise or recapitulation of the promise. Verses 6 to 22, in two, two, uh, you could say, subheadings, you have both the idea of crises and confirmation. Uh, So that's verses 6 to 22, crisis and confirmation. 
of that promise. Verses 23 and 24, that promise is again repeated to Isaac. And verses 25 to 33, again, we're, we're given a picture of crisis and confirmation of covenant. And as we'll see, verses 34 and 35, the last two verses of our chapter, really they, they do belong to the chapter that follows. Um, but we'll see also how they fit into this broader, broader narrative that we're given here. So I want to follow that division just very briefly this morning. I want us to see, um, as the inspired historian leads us through these themes, how these things are going to show us Isaac's blessedness. And indeed, they'll show us even more than that. So as we have Genesis 26 in front of us, we'll begin our reading here at the first verse. And beloved, hear once again the holy, the inerrant word of the living God. There was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Just a brief note here. That's a critical literary comment. Uh, It is the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. It is different than that one. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Now why is the prohibition against Egypt? Well, if you remember back to chapter 12, when Abraham has that famine that was just a reference in the first verse, where does Abraham go? He goes to Egypt. The Lord says to Isaac, Do not follow the path that your father himself laid. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, this promise that is given to Isaac, of course, is in substance the very self-same promise that was given to Abraham. But I want you to notice that there are two themes that are emphasized, and they're emphasized by being repeated twice. Uh, The themes are that of seed and land. Seed and land. Verses 3 and 4. You have that repeated for us twice. You will have a seed and you will also have these countries. Your seed will multiply, and they will also have all of these countries. And I also want you to notice that in verses 3 and 5, the name Abraham is repeated twice as well. So again, verse 3, we're told here that this is in performance of the oath that was sworn unto Abraham, Isaac's father. Verse 5, this because Abraham obeyed the Lord's voice. He kept his charge, etc., I want to just set that in front of you here because in many ways, this is going to help us think through what's going to come in the rest of this chapter. So we come to really what we could call the first test after the recapitulation of this promise. And so we start here at verse 6. And Isaac dwelled in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, She is my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw. And behold, 
Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. And how saidst thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this that thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lightly have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Just very briefly, uh, of course this is not the first time that we're encountering Abimelech, and, and this is of course not the first time we're encountering him in such a scenario. But I want you to notice that the narrator here gives us Abimelech's vantage point. What I mean by that is the, the, re, the words are that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw. The point is, and this is the narrator's point, you and I are supposed to see this from Abimelech's perspective. Now, what does Abimelech see? There's a couple of complexities in these few verses, but the first thing that I want you to recognize is that Abimelech's first assumption is that Isaac is not a fornicator. He sees that he is acting familiarly with this woman, but he does not, he does not assume that Isaac is simply promiscuous. Now, there are a couple of interesting themes that come from that. Uh, apparently, Isaac's carriage up to this point was one that was manifestly pious, uh, something that actually indicated that he would not be such a man. Abimelech makes it clear that if Isaac is so close to such a woman because of Isaac's integrity, that woman must be his wife. The second thing I want you to notice from Abimelech is that he tells us very clearly that adultery is a land-polluting sin. Uh, again, if you look at the corporate language that's used for us in verse 10, he says, thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us, not just upon the person who would have lain with Rebekah, but upon the entire land. Adultery pollutes an entire people. And then I want you to notice this too. As you come to verse 11, Abimelech, as a godly magistrate, and that's, I believe, how we ought to see him here, as a godly magistrate, he makes it very clear that anyone who touches Isaac so as to harm him in any way, or touches Isaac's wife, they are to be put to death. The godly magistrate at work. Um, we'll come back to that, God willing, at the very end of our time here. We'll pick up our reading again at verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Just briefly, friend, that's not necessarily in verse 16 supposed to be received as a hostile command. Abimelech is not necessarily saying here that he himself is envying Isaac, but we'll come back to that at the, time, at the end. So verses 17 to 22 leave this idea, this crisis that revolves around Rebekah, and moves to another entirely. And so verse 17, we find 
And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Just briefly, I want you to note here that you and I should be picking up a pattern at this point. There's a repetitiveness to chapter 26 that we can't miss. And that repetitiveness, it's not extraneous. It's actually helping us to think through the emphasis of the text. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Isaac, because they strove with him. And they digged another well and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna. And he removed from thence and digged another well. And for that they strove not. And he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Just very briefly, friend, I can't get away from this last verse here um, without remarking that here you have a picture of Isaac's view of providence. Uh, When the Philistines ceased to strive with Isaac, Isaac's interpretation is, it is the Lord who has given us this land. In Isaac's theology of providence, the wicked only do whatever has been decreed. It is always God who gives blessing to his people or withholds it, not men. In verses 23 and 24, you and I find a recapitulation of that promise again. And he went up from thence to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And then really to the end of the chapter, you and I have that last major section, crisis and confirmation. And he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. I just want you to notice the order. The order is he builds the altar before he digs the well. It's a crucial point, and we'll come back to that in terms of application later. Then Abimelech went unto him from Gerar and Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Behichel, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. This is a tacit contradiction of what Isaac accused them of in verse 27. They are saying pointedly, it was not for hatred that we sent you away. Resuming here at verse 30. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. And they rose up betimes in the morning, and swear one to another, and and Isaac sent them away. And they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had digged, and said unto him, We have found water. 
and he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. Who sent whom away? As you look at this text in comparison with what's gone before, the point of verse 31 is very clear, isn't it? Isaac has become so great that he is the one who now sends away the king of the Philistines. This is a mark of the blessedness that God has given to Isaac. And as I said, verses 34 and 35, which are included in our chapter divisions, um, really they belong to uh, what follows. But I think there's a way that we could interpret that, um, not only because it's in our text, but, but because, of course, there is a, a contiguous sense to the narrative in front of us, that when we read about Esau here, we're supposed to see the next real crisis of the covenant that will last right through the next chapter. Verse 34, And Esau was 40 years old when he took his wife, took to wife, rather, Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mine and Isaac unto Rebekah. So as we close in the last few minutes that we have here, I want us to look at chapter 26. And I want us to do so, first of all, just looking at its structure and how that helps us think about how we are supposed to interpret and then accordingly how we're supposed to apply this text. So first of all, I want you to notice that there is a pattern. You've probably detected that whenever we talked about the divisions of this chapter. The chapter really begins with crisis, verse 1. There's famine. That crisis is then met with the recapitulation of a promise from God. Twice this occurs. And then after that promise has been given, another crisis ensues. And at the back of that crisis, blessing comes. In chapter 26, that cycle occurs twice. It occurs twice in just these few verses. And so what are we being taught? Well, I think to answer that question, you and I have to go back to the repetitiveness that we encounter here in our text. I I did make a couple of comments as we were going through these verses to, to pay attention to the references to Abraham. And the reason why is because I believe that that is really how you and I are supposed to understand the the importance of this 26th chapter for the overall narrative of Genesis. In chapter 26, in the first verse, we're told that this was the first feast, sorry, first famine, rather. And you have to ask the question, because, of course, this is is an ordinal number, not a cardinal number. We're talking about first in the sense of, of order, and so we're limiting our focus somehow The question is, what is that limitation? In other words, what is the inspired historian doing in terms of his periodization? Well, the answer to that question is quite straightforward, isn't it? He answers it for us. It's the first famine since that of Abraham. That is the first famine since that covenantal periodization commenced in Genesis 12. And so immediately you and I are told to think about this text in conjunction with what has gone before with regard to Abraham. The narrator is making a very conscious, a very intentional intentional move to remind the reader of what has gone before. And so at verse 1, 15, 18, you and I in the narrative are reminded of Abraham what Abraham did and what he experienced. Then, 
in verses uh, 3, 5, and 24, there are references again to Abraham, but this time in terms of the promise. So, so what are we being told here? Well, the idea is, is that you and I are supposed to see in chapter 26 that there is a real connection and powerful connection between this narrative and what's gone before in the life of Abraham. And I want to briefly just tease that out for you because I, I think this, is, this will be immensely helpful for us as we move forward. I want you to notice that we're introduced to a famine. That's the very first crisis that we're introduced to in chapter 12 and verse 10 with Abraham. It was a famine that he encountered after the promise was given. Then, after that, you remember, there of course was the like kind of deception. Abraham and Isaac both tell the land, the, the people who are occupying the land in which they're refugees, that their wives are in fact their sisters. Now, that parallels Abraham at two points. You remember that. He, Abraham does that in Egypt, chapter 12, and he does that in Philistia with Abimelech in chapter 20. Then, in both cases, you have the discovery of this deception followed by a rebuke from the pagan or heathen magistrate. Again, this parallels Abraham at two points. You remember this is precisely what the Pharaoh did in chapter 12, and again, of course, it's what Abimelech did to Abraham in chapter 20. Whenever it was discovered that Abraham had told the nation, uh, nations rather, that his wife was his sister, both magistrates reproved him. We can go further. You recognize in this text that Isaac is invited to stay in the land by Abimelech, and he's given gifts. That's exactly what happens to Abraham in chapter 20. And again, actually with Abimelech. Uh, the Lord, through Abimelech, gives Abraham gifts and invites him to stay in the land. Strikingly, that's not the only level of parallel. Then you come to the conflict over the wells. This mirrors Abraham's life at chapter 13. You remember whenever the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram become, become hostile one to another, this, this leads to a parting of the waves. Also, this parallels the life of Abraham after the episode with Abimelech, where again the Philistines, uh, out of envy for Abraham, stop up his wells and there's strife between them. That's in chapter 21. And then, even more staggeringly, all of this takes place at the selfsame location uh, that it did for Abraham in chapter 21. It takes place in Beersheba. So, so we, we could go right through here, but, but I want you to recognize that, that Abraham's life very intentionally is supposed to be really recapitulated in Isaac's. In God's providential dealings with these two men, there are incredible parallels, and the narrator is showing to us those parallels. But it raises the question, and this is the question we'll close on this morning. Why? Why? Why show and why emphasize these parallels to the degree that they are in this chapter? Well, friend, I think there are three basic answers to that, and just very briefly. It makes sense that there would be these parallels because these two men are in the same covenant. They are given the same promises. They know like blessings. And on top of that, they experience like afflictions. 
The narrator is showing us that very clearly. Uh, this is the same covenant in substance that Abraham enjoyed. And so Isaac will have a like experience, even in terms of his blessing and his afflictions. But you and I are also reminded here powerfully also about the immutability of God's decrees. Um, In these cycles, you and I are encountering crisis after crisis, just as we did with Abraham. And by repeating it in the way that it does, it's a helpful reminder to us that, that God's omnipotence is never exhausted, that he will see his promises fulfilled, even though time and again they encounter opposition. The last point I want to raise is why this picture of Isaac? I I told you before that we should not see this as a stream of biographies. The book of Genesis is not just a a collation of of various spiritual reflections on the lives of men. There's a purpose, an overwhelming purpose, behind all of these things that, that really cast long shadows over all of these personal accounts. So why give us a picture of Isaac Really the only sustained picture of Isaac we receive in the scriptures that is so palpably unflattering. Here you have Isaac following not only in his father's footsteps in terms of blessing, but also following in his father's footsteps in terms of folly. You see, friend, I think the answer to that question is very simple, isn't it? This is to exalt the grace of God. You see, the promise comes to Isaac not only in opposing the evils of the Philistines, but just like it did with Abraham, the promise comes to Isaac, even overcoming the sins of Isaac and Abraham. It's a wonderful picture of grace. Again, beloved, we will have to stop there. So much much more could be said. I will close by saying that that connection to chapter 12 then should become all the more clear. Hebrews chapter 12 should become all the more clear. Why is it that the apostle makes the argument that if we have these great cloud of witnesses, you and I have moral obligations? Well, the answer actually lies in the example of Isaac in this chapter. If we're part of the same covenant, in substance we have the same promises. And so in substance we will also have the same kinds of afflictions. What you see in Isaac, what you see in Abraham will be recapitulated in some way in the lives of every believer because the same God is theirs. The same promises are theirs. And so may the Lord lead us to be those who indeed run with patience the race that is set before us. Amen. Let's close just very briefly by going to the throne of grace again. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that your word shows to us so many wonderful things, that it is truly a light to our path, that it guides us and brings enlightenment. And Father, we pray that it would. Lord, we often have sat under these words and we confess our barrenness, that we are so often unfruitful in hearing, We do pray that these brief meditations this morning would be blessed to our souls, uh, that you would truly conform us to Christ's likeness through them. Lord, as we come now to the worship of your name, we do pray. 
And we pray in great earnest that you would meet with us. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.